Coming up, community groups bounce back after isolation. The author of a new book about the Aradale Asylum joins me. Students forced to wait months for driving tests after 300 appointments were postponed. Ararat welcomes its first refugee family into school community shaves for kids' helpline. You're listening to Ararat's latest with local journalist Jack Ward. Hello and welcome. Thank you for joining me today. It's the last week of term for me before school holidays and I can't wait for a break. The last couple of months have been jam-packed with changes due to coronavirus. Also some exciting opportunities, but it will be nice to take a breather for a couple of weeks over holidays, that is for sure. Lots coming up today, so be sure to share your opinion here on the Facebook Live in the comments. If you're listening back to this on your podcasting app, jump on over to Facebook and have a read and join in on the discussion. Community groups and organisations are slowly getting back on their feet as restrictions ease, but as we know, Premier Daniel Andrews announced a backflip on Saturday afternoon after urgent discussions. The number of visitors you can have at your home has reduced to five. Outside the home, families and friends can meet in groups of up to ten. Restaurants, pubs, auction halls, community halls, libraries, museums and places of worship will stay at a maximum of 20 people in any one space until July 12. Businesses that were set to open today, like gyms, cinemas, theatres, TABs, can do so, but again, only with a maximum of 20 people. Community sport for kids and non-contact competition for adults can proceed as planned. And of course, ski seasons and accommodation facilities with communal spaces have also opened, but with increased screening and safeguards in place. Now, let's begin today's show by focusing on some community groups and their return to gatherings, training and rehearsals. Ararat City Band members are dusting off their instruments this week as they return to the band room. But after Saturday's announcement, they'll be monitoring their number of attendees very closely. It's been three months since the group last rehearsed together, so President David Cosgriff expects members to be a little rusty. Individually, you're not going to be up to the same playing standard because you're not playing as often. You've got to rely on being a bit more inspired at home to do some home practice, which is really, really difficult. Um, And it's the social aspect of it as well, just not being able to get together with your friends on a regular basis, catching up and just having a chat before and after band uh, and actually playing uh, music as a group. Um, It's like playing in a band. It's a group effort. You can't... It's not a bunch of individuals. You are as a group, so... Uh, you lose that musical quality playing at home that you don't, you, we haven't been able to get while we've been playing as a group in the band together. As for Monday, we can have 20 uh, in the room. I think it's actually more than 20. We're up to 50. So if we can have everyone in the band, we'd hope to get uh, between uh, 20 and 30 turn up. Being the first uh, rehearsal back, you might have some people that are still a little bit reticent to come back yet. Mm. So if anyone's not comfortable, we're saying don't bother. And then you might get the others that have just been hanging out for rehearsal and will come no matter what. Are you looking forward to Monday? Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Uh, music's been a big part of my life personally. It's been a big part of uh, everyone else's uh, lives that are within the band. We've got family groups that are played within the band. We've got people that met and became families because of their involvement with the, with the band. So it means a lot to be able to get back together. Bands generally play at their best when they've got something that they're aiming for, whether it be a concert uh, just a normal play out or a competition. They've got some, some incentive to rehearse, some incentive to, uh, to pitch in and, and try their best. And generally bands do perform better when they've got something to aim for. Otherwise, they're just treading water. 
I know I do know that the um, the Ararat show has been cancelled, but I think they're keen on putting some sort of community event mm. on in October. Um, so I've basically already said to the band, "Well, there'll be a date in October. I hope that we'll get involved um, to try and create a bit of community spirit and get mm. things back going again." Apart from that, there's only a couple of small gigs towards the end of the year before we get into the Christmas season. Cornet player Bruno Andrade can't wait to return next week to reunite with his fellow musicians. Definitely looking forward to it. Um, yeah, it's been a long 13 weeks of doing absolutely nothing and not seeing anyone and not playing with um, the people. Um, yeah, it's a big hole that's been missing. The Arrowton District Four-Wheel Drive Club held its first event on Saturday following the isolation period. Club President Daniel Cox updated me on their plans. It's been a couple of months that we've had to sort of work through, but yeah, no, it's good to get back on track now and start getting some normality back to it, but obviously still working around, you know, all the COVID restrictions and things along those lines. Yeah, what are some extra precautions that you've had to put in place? Uh, we, we've just got to, um, obviously, social distancing side of it, so we've got to, um, yeah, just work with the recommendations from the state government around that. Um, if we have any more than 20 people, then we're breaking up into separate groups and, you know, making the groups smaller and, yeah, working around those sorts of things. Tell me a bit about the club. Um, how many members do you have? Yeah, at this stage we have about, there's 20 people in the club at the moment. The club sort of started back in April last year, but then we became affiliated with Board Drive Victoria in around July, and then we sort of um, went official on the first week, first week of September last year. When it comes to four-wheel driving in our local area, is there a number of tracks and areas that you can actually go to as a club? Yeah, there are. There's um, Mount Cole. There's, there's, they've got a lot of tracks through there. The Pyrenees Ranges, Arrow Hills, a lot of different tracks for Grampian. So, you know, there are a lot of a lot of tracks and there's a lot of, I guess, a lot of different tracks in relation to the difficulty levels of those tracks that we, that we cater from uh, novice. All through, all the way through to experienced forward drivers. With 20 members at the moment, are you looking to increase your presence within the community and increase your membership numbers? Uh, yes, we are. We're um, now that COVID, you know, restrictions are lifting and we can be a bit more active in the community. We're we're looking at um, yeah, obviously getting out, getting out there a bit more, and um, we're doing raffles and things like to fund the club so we can you know yeah, be more so you know out there socially. Uh, we're also in communications at the moment with the council in, re- in relation to obtaining um, property for a club site so we can set up set up there. Brilliant. That's that's exciting for the club, no doubt. Oh, that'd be, yeah, the club, we're yeah, very excited that you know, that something will come from this. So uh, that'd be great for us to, so, we, so we can hold our monthly meetings there and we can also do open, open days in the community and different things along those lines. For more, visit the Arraton District Four Wheel Drive Club Facebook page. As I mentioned earlier, gyms have reopened today despite a backflip on a number of other restrictions. Lauren Armstrong is the club manager at Arat's Anytime Fitness and I sat down with her last week to discuss the return. The doors will open up 9am on the 22nd of June. Um, and yeah, just excited to get back to a healthy lifestyle. Yeah. It's been a long three months. <laughs> and what's the impact been on your staff here? Um, yeah, so we all um, got stood down, um, so we haven't been working that whole entire time um, until this week. Um, so obviously we're prepping the gym, getting it ready at the moment. What has your response been from members? Are they looking to head oh, back? Everyone's so excited. I know there's a lot of people that this is their life. Um, a lot of people haven't been feeling that great about themselves because it is a challenging job to work out at home. Um, you know, not everyone is able to get their hands on equipment for over the last three months or anything. 
Um, and, you know, for those workers out there that I know have still been working and haven't been stood down, you know, this has been really missing in their life because, yeah, it's just been not great for anyone, really. Yeah, I think a lot of a lot of our health has kind of slipped yeah. away during the pandemic, a hasn't big, it, staying at home? big emotional factor, mm. for sure, mentally, physically, all of it. It's managing your gym this, in, in this mm-hmm. time, cleaning, sanitising, yep. is that going to be a challenge when you're open 24-7? No, um, cleanliness, I mean, from get-go when all this pandemic come out, any time had already upped their cleaning services before we got to close. So we had, um, yeah, the cleaning was upped within my job and the cleaner that's already coming here daily. All those protocols are in place, hygiene and cleanliness, is it's a safe environment. With the, the talk around members, I know there was a bit of data released mm-hmm. nationwide that some don't feel comfortable returning just yet. Have you heard anything like that or is everyone really keen to get back? So yeah, South Australia and New South Wales have given us some feedback and members have just been excited to be able to train. They're feeling good again, being able to move their bodies. So yeah, the biggest response has been, I want to, I want to get back to the gym and can't wait to train. Um, And like I said, with all those protocols in place and being communicated to members, members have felt very safe returning. And for you, I mean, you see a lot of people in the gym. It must be great to have that social bit of your life coming back and seeing people's faces through the door. Yeah, they're my family. And Ararat's such a a great community where, yeah, it's just a lot of love has been missing since we all closed. So I can't wait to see everyone again. have a story? Are you or someone you know holding a community event? I want to know what you know about local issues and upcoming events. Contact Ararat's Latest via Facebook, Instagram, Twitter or email Latest at gmail.com. Your story may instigate a community discussion, help a local organisation and importantly, keep locals informed. Coming up, we find out about the backlog of driving tests here in Ararat and Ararat 800 primary school students raise funds for Kids Helpline. But first, the Grampian Soaring Club has returned to the air in the last couple of weeks, so I headed out to the club last week to have a chat with committee member David Lovell, who has been involved with the club since its beginnings in 1974. We're a um, small non-profit organisation that that do offer glider um, flight training, so start from raw novice and sky's the limit really so to speak um but you can um you know start from nothing and end up as a world champion if you if you've got the desire and the drive we're a smallish sort of club um about 30 odd members at the minute so and you know, we come from all around so since that you first started in 74 what have been some of the major changes Major changes, we, we um, started with one glider, one wooden two-seat glider and a winch. And we operated out of a farmer's paddock at Navarre. So over the years we've grown to, you know, to what we've got now. A major hangar complex that houses about 18 gliders um, and planes. Um, club owns five, a tow plane, four gliders. And we're looking at increasing that. Yeah, as time goes by as well, we, we're trying to replace you know, a couple of the gliders with a, a more upmarket, more modern single-seat gliders. How many instructors do you have here? We've got two qualified flying instructors at the moment. That comes and goes a little. We've got three, I guess you'd call them trainee instructors, um, that, are do, that are at the first stage to become a full 
flying instructor, so they're coming online as well. But it just takes a little bit of time, and especially at the moment, um, you can't get to courses or, or all of that sort of thing. For those in the community who might want to get involved with the club, yep. um, how do they go about that? Is there any costs associated with that? Well, yeah, they, well, it doesn't have to be. It depends what you want to do. Um, but for a full flying, to, to um, learn to fly, yes, you, you join the club. And then you've also got to join the Gliding Federation of Australia. And then we, the club, the club owned aircraft, we, we hire them, uh, or the, the person flying hires them at 50 cents a minute, I think, um, plus the launch. So there is a little bit. It's probably similar cost to being involved in a golf club, but it's the sort of thing too, you can put in a lot or you can put in not so much. Well, pretty much if you can drive a car, you can learn to fly. There's no particular scary, dangerous um, or, or special skills that you have to have to do it. You were saying there's a lot, quite a lot of members here and people that come out here from other locations. Would you yep. like to see a more increased um, interest from the local community? Oh, for sure. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, yeah, every, everyone's um, welcome. So when you've got you know, a more local base, that sort of work does work a bit better. So what, what you find, like in the whole gliding movement, um, a lot of people have been involved for a long time and they're starting to get a bit old. There's a lot of, lot of clubs, and we've got a few guys in this age, but you know, above 70 years old. So, yeah, their involvement is starting to slow down. Big yeah, well, time, so. I guess that brings me, yeah, to my next question. What does the future look like for the club? Well, um, we're trying to um, put some um, sort of initiatives together now to, to attract people. The Gliding Federation have got um, this scheme called Soaring to the Future. So we've just, they started off with a, a small sample of clubs that took it on, then, a, then another round, we're in the next round. So we're about to start that. So it's a bit different marketing and um, the way you do things. So hopefully that'll, that's a sort of national initiative and we'll be involved with all that. So but exciting for the club? Yeah, I think so. I think so. Um, but... You get to, like, it It goes in sort of waves. You, you'll go along really good for a while, and then for one reason or another, people have got to give it away, and, and then you, you might drop down a bit of a trough. And then, you know, hopefully at the moment, we're, we've sort of been in the trough and, and we'll come out of all this and rebuild, and um, we've got everything there, all the equipment, the infrastructure. Um, we're just seeking some new members, really. Uh, when you say trophy, you mean in COVID or just in general? Just oh, to... just in general, yeah, probably. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, but that it certainly hasn't helped the, the, the COVID business. Yeah, is there any um, plans in the pipeline to expand the club? Well, yeah, actually. Um, so what we hope to do is, is actually, we just drafted it last night, a letter to the um, rural city, just so we can have... Some more hangar sites made available because we're ho we're hoping to expand the club in the next few years, like over the next few years, because um, there's a there's another site that's under threat of, of not being able to glide anymore. So, and they're probably the biggest in Victoria, mm. so they're going to have to go somewhere by the look of it. So we want to be able to welcome them here. Welcome them here, yeah. I was offered a flight whilst I was visiting the club, but I politely declined. It was not my definition of fun, but if you want to become a soarer, head over to the Grampian Soaring Club's Facebook page.
Young drivers awaiting their learner permit hazard perception and license tests may have to wait months beyond their birthdays as Vic Roads begins to work through a backlog of appointments. A Department of Transport spokesperson told the Ararat Advocate that more than 300 appointments have been postponed here in Ararat since restrictions were introduced in March. Grampians Driving School operator and instructor Peter Bowen has more than 20 clients awaiting their tests. However, he is also very sympathetic to the young people who are only becoming eligible now. The ones who are really going to feel it is the ones that have just turned 18 because I believe there's, there's going to be a bit of a waiting list because they've got to clear the backlog first, which is, which is fair enough also. People just probably need to be patient because it's going to take them probably two or three months maybe so they could even look like getting a booking possibly if, if what the government and the Department of Transport released is accurate. The department could not provide a timeline for the recommencement of new bookings or how long they expect it will be until ARAT's backlog is cleared. All up, 100,000 licensing appointments, including 55,000 drive tests, have been postponed statewide since March 25. A new book will explore why the Aradale Lunatic Asylum has become known globally as Australia's most haunted building. David Waldron is a historian, a, a historian and anthropologist based at Federation University in Ballarat with a keen interest in folklore. He is also one of the book's authors. David, what is this project all about? So this is uh, Aradale, The Making of a Haunted Asylum. And the key question I wanted to look at is what makes a place become perceived as haunted in the public imagination. You know, why is it that this particular site has now become, you know, represented all over the country, even globally, as, you know, Australia's most haunted site and so on, whereas other similar institutions don't have anything like that type of reputation? So, you know, what are the forces that come together to create that kind of public impression about a heritage site? I think the only thing comparable to it in Australia is really Port Arthur in terms of its... um, uh, public perception of being haunted and so on. And I think sometimes here locally, uh, the locals here in Ararat don't really click and recognise that. Do you think that that's true? Yeah, I, I think it is. It's a really unique site, but there's a really unique tension as well in this particular site. And the model I use for this is research by uh, Dr. Kelly George in the United States on Penhurst Asylum, which has a very similar history and structure. And she talks about there being what she calls mnemonic battles, And mnemonic battles are where you have battles over representations of a site because there's different public interests involved. Um, So in her case, um, and the same with Ararat, you have a problem where you have an institution that's been a centre of the community's economy, culture and daily life for, well, for 130 years in the case of um, Aradale. You also have stories from people who are mentally ill and anxiety and so on about mental illness and a history of scandals throughout mental illness in Australia and people have been trying to get those stories out. You also have people who are anxious about their reputation because they had family, friends, people who worked there, people who are often very good, kind, caring people. And then the third thing you have is the impact of pop culture, which is how people have grappled with these issues through literature, fiction, television, film and so on, and the folklore people have told about the sites. And folklore is referring to the stories people tell in the community about their experiences. So you have this sort of three-way battle. Now, I'll add into that a third thing, which is dark tourism, where these stories, often very personal stories, get turned into um, a way of generating money through tourism. And and it creates a really unique kind of tension, and a site like this becomes a focal point of tensions regarding how we perceive, think, and deal with 
mental illness. And you've got some other writers that are helping you with this book. Yes, yes. So we have uh, Sean Waldron, and Sean Waldron is a psychologist based in Cambridge, and her particular input is uh, looking at psychological treatments, uh, the history of psychology in Australia. Um, I've focused more on the history and heritage and the folklore aspect. Uh, Nathaniel Buchanan, who runs the ghost tours there, also has input into this book regarding how ghost tours are constructed, how you market them, how you integrate a ghost tour into that broader network of folklore. And in particular, this sort of tightrope you have between history on the one hand, uh, respect for people's experiences and so on who've had traumatic times on the other, and on the third side of this, of course, is public expectations through tourism. So how did this book start? What was the instigator to you all coming together and writing the book? Um, well, the instigation for it is I'd been looking at the site and looking at the sheer enormity of the stories, the global reach of stories about this site. And it is something you find people talking about in the United States, Britain, all over the world. And I was finding parallels in um, my research in Britain and that sort of led me to think, okay, I need to do something about this history. And then it became looking for additional expertise to supplement areas I didn't have specific training in, such as psychology and, of course, the ins and outs of constructing an industry based around dark tourism. And how long has the book been in progress for? Um, in terms of solid writing on it, um, about a year and a half. But in terms of collecting stories, materials, historical resources and so on, um, oh, several years. The, the book will cover the, the topics you've spoken about, but is it hoped that, I know from a tourism side of point or point of view, is it hoped that it will encourage more people to come and visit Ararat and look at the asylum? I think so, it will. And it talks a lot about the asylum and its history and its layout and the particular stories of people in that asylum. And look, I would really love my hope of you know, producing a book like this that will generate interest, but in particular generate discourse so we can see things like exhibitions on the stories of people who are at the asylum. You know, we've got a unique site there which gives you 130 years of the history of Australian psychiatry. You know, in a national level, that's a really unique site that deserves more attention and um, uh, public discourse. And I just want to ask you one question, uh, kind of away from the book, but just uh, in interest, yeah. I actually visited Aradale last year and I really enjoyed the tour there. But yeah. when you go in there, you can see that the building's starting to decay, the paint's coming off the walls. Yeah. How yeah. how do we preserve this, I guess, icon really for Ararat into the future? Yeah. Well, this is a critical issue because demolition by neglect is a real risk at this site. It is such a unique site, architecturally, historically, culturally. It's absolutely critical. Um, I think the main thing is we need to look at development and we need to look at development that looks at multiple uses of the site, uh, one that engages with heritage. But um, I could see if you're actually looking at developing this site you know, and trying to preserve it and get the money and resources in to maintain it. There's dark tourism, also looking at it as a venue site, also looking at it as a place to host uh, exhibitions, conferences, that kind of thing. But it really needs that um, you know, impact really from state government dollars to develop it as a uh, both a tourist site but also a heritage site and a site that is connected into its local community but also one that's designed to bring in people from outside because of its unique history, architecture and culture. Do you know if there's much conversation going on about that sort of thing? Yes, yes, there are. Um, I can't talk about details, but there are discussions going on with uh, Regional Development Victoria and the state government that I'm aware of and have been privy to. And I really hope, I mean, it's all been thrown in a loop because of COVID-19, but I really hope that turns into some serious financial investment. David, thank you for joining me. A fascinating insight into Aradale, which is such a large part 
of Ararat's history from not a period not so long ago. Now, this week's Your Say poll question was, should more be done to preserve the Aradale Lunatic Asylum? And there was quite the response. 540 people had their say. 95% of respondents said that more does need to be done, whilst 5% said there does not. I know speaking to caravan park operators recently that Aradale does draw in a lot of tourism for Ararat. So Aradale, the making of a haunted asylum, will be available in bookshops and online from July 1. Our local Rural Australians for Refugees chapter has welcomed Ararat's first refugee family to town with the help of Ararat's Uniting Church. It's been the group's dream to assist refugees and to welcome a family into the Ararat community for some time, having donated money and goods to help refugees in the past. President Leonie Foster said although the group is a big supporter of the Asylum Seeker Resource Centre in Melbourne, their aim has always been to do something more local. This is a great outcome. It's only a start, but it's it's certainly um, very exciting. Ararat Uniting Church Council Chairman Frank Kitchen said the church's passion and commitment to the refugee cause was ignited following human rights advocate, barrister and author Julian Birdside's visit to Ararat in 2014. We've had the commitment since then and then this opportunity came up. We had this old church manse and we had some funds from the sale of the Elmhurst Church and we initially were trying to look for a house for homeless but that didn't work out but anyway we thought well let's do it up for a refugee family and give them a chance because many in Ararat want to uh, to to look and help refugees out and the country's a great opportunity and hopefully it'll work so it's just absolutely fantastic it's worked out. Sudanese refugee Mary Deng and six children, including her eldest daughter, Abuk Majuk, have been settling into Ararat in their new home for the past month. Miss Majuk said that they've moved from Pakenham thanks to the help of the Australian Multicultural Education Services that assist migrants settling into their new lives in Australia. I think it means like a new start, yeah, so we can go and it's a quiet area, I guess, safer. And... Um, it's quiet, everything's <laughs> close, so... Yeah, I think it's good because it's quiet area and before we living in countryside Maui, but now we're moving Alarat. Uh, the people from Alarat, I think it's a good people. The Rural Australians for Refugees, Grampians Garra Word Chapter and the Ararat Uniting Church Council both hope that the family's arrival is just the beginning of welcoming refugee families to Ararat. Lastly today, what started out as a bit of fun for friends William Hope and Jack Bartlett, the Mohawk look has now turned into a school-wide fundraising effort at Ararat 800 that has surpassed $2,600. Have a listen. I originally cut my hair and then Will saw it and when I went to his house he thought it would be cool if I cut his. Then we cut them into Mohawks and... We were kind of just thinking about doing sort of crazy hair and it was going to be a mullet but then Jack kind of messed it up and went too close to the middle so then it ended up being a mohawk to make it look a little bit better. And then, yeah, and then I was allowed to keep it till the Zoom meeting on the Wednesday but our teacher thought it would be kind of cool if he kept it to like the first day back at school and then we're like me and Will said it'd kind of be cool if we turned it into like a fundraiser. We thought that it could be good to 
help people with mental health. So Mr. Haddo suggested Beyond Blue. And I thought that since we were children that we could do it for children and decided that it could be Kids Helpline. For us, Kids Helpline probably, like, stands out because we're kids and... They should donate because it's helping people in need. It is indeed. William Hope and Jack Bartlett there. The teachers at R8800 are also getting involved. Matthew Haddo has shaved his head into a mohawk and school principal Ryan Oliver will do the same this Friday. I spoke to Ryan who is very impressed with the students and the initiative they've shown to organise the fundraising effort. Look, I couldn't be prouder. I think as a school community, we couldn't be prouder. Um, you know, when you see pure philanthropic leadership like we're seeing from these these people today, we know it, it's something that comes from the heart and it's for, for no egotistical or, or personal gain. It's purely to do something good for, for society. And I think if, if society as a general could look at what these kids are doing, we could all learn something from them. When you've got people driving things as passionately as the, these kids are, that people naturally follow. And um, when they've obviously put in a, a hell of a lot of work to get to where it is. So, you know, I know that $2,300 is a lot of money, um, but I know it's not going to be the total when we finish. I think we're going to get a lot more. So, yeah, very impressed. Jack and William's peer, Acacia Merrick, has also joined in and is committed to shaving her head on the last day of term as well. If you want to support the kids and the teachers, donations can be made at give.everydayhero.com forward slash au forward slash crazy hair day. That brings me to the end of today's show. Thank you for joining me. All 15 episodes of Rats Latest can be listened back on your favourite podcasting apps. I'll be taking a break over the school holidays, but I'll be continuing to work for The Advocate, so be sure to get in touch with any news tips or stories. To those who are lucky enough to have a break over the holidays like myself, enjoy it and stay safe. I'll be back in late July. This was Rats Latest. <laughs>